to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. With me today, I have, um, I say this every week, but I, and I mean it every week, but I have a special guest, but this time not just one special guest. I have two special guests, and they are special both to the world of theology and also just to me because we were friends, colleagues, somewhat students together at certain points in our careers. Uh, I have with me Stephen Felix Yeager and Yoon Shin. Yoon's been a guest before, but I think this is Stephen's first time. Yeah. Uh, welcome, both of you. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Yeah. You forgot conference roomies. That's right. Yeah. Conference <laughs> Oh, sorry. Yeah. Conference. How can I forget? We yeah. share rooms at every conferences we, you know, we go to. It's a <laughs> special bond you have yeah. to have when you're cheap and broke and you need the cheapest hotel rooms. Uh, That's right. This last one was, uh, was an adventure. Uh, this last one convinced me we will never do that again. Yeah. Anyways, here we go. Let me just say, people, guest, if you don't know you and you can go back, we had a great conversation some time ago. But just for everyone, Stephen is an associate professor and chair of the Worship Arts and Media Program at Life Pacific University. Um, Yoon and I are both, well, I think, Yoon, you'll be a priest soon, but we are both in our Anglican mission ordained together or or are you priest now you no no i'm a deacon yeah soon soon though on your way um but today we are talking about their newly published book i happen to have it with me here renewing christian worldview and it's interesting i'm going to start here well actually first Stephen, why don't you because you are new introduce yourself a little bit what you do how you do it anything about you that our guests might want to know Sure. Um, yeah, like you said, we go way back. Um, we were, um, we'll say master students together. I think, um, I think we were, we overlapped in a few years, um, in different, different times, but, um, but, uh, many, many years ago, um, been friends with Aaron and you. And so that's, it's been great. I, um, like you said, I, I work at LPU. Um, as far as my scholarship goes, I, um, do, um, you basically taught us this term last time we were in a meeting, but like essentially constructive theology. And, um, and, uh, but mine is between uh, uh, kind of interdisciplinary between theology, aesthetics, the arts, uh, recently getting more into ethics and public theology. And uh, I'm working on a book for a uh, Baker academic that should come out in um, probably 2025. It's due in, in um, September. So, um, so that'll be my first public theology. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but then, you know, um, been talking to Yoon forever. We're part of the same uh, philosophy group. He's the chair of that in the uh, at, at Society for Pentecostal Studies. And, um, you know, one of these nights when we were in our shared conference room, you know what I mean? Um, we were just like hitting ideas about what we were inspired about and, um, and basically came up with this idea probably five years ago at this point. Um, yeah, it was a long time ago. I think it was yeah. at uh, Lee University when SPS was meeting there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and we just, we had this, we had an idea that was probably a lot more complex than what um, the book ended up being, but the heart of the book um, came there. And, um, and that was basically to look at the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness, because you and I both teach ethics classes. 
And, um, and then he's an epistemologist and I'm an esthetician. So we were like, Hey, this is, this could be perfect. And, um, so, uh, so yeah, that was basically, that was the basic idea of, um, of how it came about what I do, all that good stuff. Yeah. Thanks. It, it's interesting. I'm going to start and just diving in and, and we can even go back five years ago and somehow I, I know I was there, but I don't think I was a part of that conversation. Um, I probably had gone to bed. You guys like to stay up late and chit chat and I just you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm asleep. I don't know how you guys do it. Oh, you were just invited. Have, you, he might not, you might not <laughs> have been in our room that one. Perfect. That, that time you might not have been in wow. our room. Now um. I feel excluded anyways. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so let's, um, let's talk about worldview because I mean, we'll start from this kind of question of worldview and worldview, and then we'll get into transcendentals and why that way. But, you know, I think, I think back to around, I guess, 15 or 20 years ago, I feel like worldview became like a popular word. It was just, everyone was talking about worldview. What is worldview? How to engage with worldview? What does it do for us? Mm -hmm. And it's since kind of maybe waned a bit in its popularity as a term or even as a, as a study. And it's one of the reasons why I like the title of your book, because it's not just uh, talking about renewal theology, Christian theology, but it's also kind of talking in some sense about renewing this idea of worldview again. So why did you feel that this was necessary? We'll start there. This book was necessary for readers and for Christian theology. Um, I, what I'll say is, um, so what, what started with me, and I, I think this is probably what um, helped to bring this conversation together at the school, um, at LPU, the uh, the provost asked me to redesign one of our courses. It was a uh, uh, basically an intro to philosophy course, and it was called like basic Christian belief. No, I, I don't know. It wasn't that. It, it was something to do with like roots of modern thought. I think it was called roots of modern thought, and it was es essentially an intro to philosophy course. And um, and it was all good. And they asked me to change it to Christian worldview. And this was like, and I and I knew Christian worldview classes were popping up in Christian universities. And then they were just talking about like a lot of Christian universities are, are approaching philosophy um, a little more positional. So they're, they're saying like, we're not just looking at the main questions that are, you know, in entering to field of philosophy, but like from our own positionality of just being Christians and, and, and how a worldview is formed. Um, and so I thought that was super interesting and um, it's, it's a more guided approach. And um, there's been a lot of books on Christian worldview, um, which we hit in the beginning of it. Um, and uh, and you can talk a little bit about that. I think you probably wrote that section. And um, but they really came from non-Pentecostal traditions. So Yoon, if you want to talk about that, yeah, you know my my um, theological training, part of my theological training and history um, in the beginning was formed a lot by the Reformed tradition, which you know the Reformed tradition was one of the first to really adopt worldview thinking. Um, you can think about like worldview apologetics and whatnot. Um, and the way reform, but especially the way evangelicals have adopted um, the worldview has been very propositional, very theoretical. Now, it seems like they'll give some lip service, like they'll recognize and they'll, they'll admit that it's not theoretical. It's not um, ultimately pre, uh, uh, propositional. For example, like John Frame, who I think uh, does a little bit better job, he says, you know, um, ultimate presupposition, which I understand how he takes worldview, is a matter of the heart. You know, so the reform side kind of has more of that um, 
pre-theoretical embodied perspective. However, when we when we look at the wider like evangelical um, literature and talk on worldview, it's very much the theoretical. It's very much about beliefs, ultimate beliefs. That's about thinking. Um, and so we wanted to, from uh, from a Pentecostal perspective, and not just classical Pentecostal, but just kind of global renewal perspective, is that um, the way we the, the the way we imagine the world, the way we embody the world, the way we um, go about living our commitments in this world is doesn't primarily come and fundamentally come from our thinking, but from our imagination, from the stories that we have learned to uh, embody and to participate in, from the stories that we hear and whatnot, and we perpetuate. So we wanted to offer that, um, that view of worldview from a Pentecost perspective. And for us, it's Pentecostal because it's pneumatological. It's, um, we, we look at embodiment because of, because of what the spirit encounter has done for us and how it has animated our lives for going forward and, and shaped our imagination about what the world is really like and our place in it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So let's, let's kind of talk about that for a second. So when we're talking about worldview and, and first off, Stephen and I have both ultimately forgiven you of your reformed past. So you can be <laughs> He's healed. I say that jokingly, but also in the midst of, you know, the the cessationist conference that's happening as we're working oh, on this. Man. So, right, up road, right up the road from where I'm Yeah, right. so so there's a there's a whole world here. We'll have to get into that conversation at a later time. But so let's let's you and kind of that thing. When we say worldview, what do we actually say? What are we actually meaning? Like, and I liked how you kind of framed it a little bit in terms of the way that you guys approached it with how do we embody the stories, the narratives, the reality that we live within? But when worldview is often used, whether it's in Reformed traditions or other traditions, what are we really saying when we use that word so the audience knows this is what a worldview is? Yeah, so in our book, we define renewal worldview as a fundamental orientation of the narrated body. So already right there, we are taking the focus off from what we believe into something that's more fundamental in what we do. So it's a fundamental orientation of the narrated body that implicitly and often subconsciously imagines and understands reality. Hmm. Um, I'll give an example. So um, stories, we, we receive stories, stories about our family, our heritage, about our place in the world. Um, even when we're given names, uh, if, if people, if our parents um, want to give us a meaningful name, that meaning, the story, that meaning, that narrated meaning is given to us to kind of project. To hey, you, us. Oh, one second. Yeah. Hardcott, you, you cut off a lot. Oh, really? Right okay. there. I don't know if that happened to Steven, but just uh, give it like three seconds and then start again. Okay. Steven, did you hear, uh, did I cut off on your end too? He didn't cut off completely. Um, it the it got a little dicey there, but I, I heard everything you were saying. Okay, I didn't all right. at all. So just take give it three seconds and then start over for me. Okay. Okay. So here's an example uh, of of the narrated body. 
So we are, uh, we're just immersed in stories, not just the stories that we tell, but the stories that we are told to us and told not even in um, explicit ways. We could embody and participate in stories that are acted upon us without explicit example. Um, for example, if, if we're given a meaningful name. Uh, so my, my, um, my oldest son's name, uh, middle name, it's Korean, it's, it's Sa-young. Um, it's, it's very, it's complicated. It's based on the, the Chinese characters of the word Sa-young. Young is like, like spirit, um, soul, and the whatnot. So the, the idea, the meaning of Sa-young is like the child who kind of swims um, and it kind of resides in the divine presence. Okay. Hmm. Now, when I gave that name to, when my wife and I gave that name to our oldest son, we wanted him to live into that reality of, of the name. And the way we act upon that name, like we're, we're trying to raise him to be a faithful member of the body of Christ. We want him to grow in maturity and to, to rejoice in God's presence, right? We don't have to explicitly tell him the meaning of this name, like repeatedly or whatnot. Um, but the way we act upon that in the story that we have imagined for him already embod it like inculcates in his imagination who he is without him, him even really thinking about it at, at certain like, you know, times. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I want to kind of, what you're saying is kind of bringing an example to mind, uh, which is it's always interesting because you're in I fields, right? Me kind of working in pistology and you in epistemology. I think we found so much resonance a lot with our way of thinking from different venues. And one of these ways, try, and this is really elementary, so tell me if I'm completely off, right? It's the power of Sunday school and telling the stories, the narrative of scripture, where you don't have to tell you know, a, a six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old, here's what to believe out of the story. You tell them the story and they can embody that story and they can understand the good and bad and right and wrong within it. And actually that story influences and shapes them in ways that just telling them, you know, it's, again, this is really elementary. It's Sesame Street and showing uh, sharing, not telling sharing, right? Um, or the old adage for, you know, show business, show, don't tell, right? It's something about that reality that shapes the worldview more than me just saying, hey, Yoon, don't be a jerk, right? Like it's actually saying, it's actually kind of giving narrative to your life. Does that, is that kind of what you're saying? Is that an okay example? Yeah. So if you want to teach somebody courage, you can teach them like, you know, have them read a textbook on the definition of courage or, or Aristotle's view of courage and virtue and whatnot. Or you can have that person read a, a biography of somebody who practiced great courage. And I would argue, I would say that, that that person who reads the biography may identify with the person, um, have this affective, this emotional pull towards such a great example. And even if not like explicitly thinking about it, or, or maybe that person will begin to imagine, especially like children will begin to imagine and place himself or herself in the shoes of somebody who is like that courageous person. 
that they read about and will begin to enact that um, that virtue in their lives. And after a while, they will become a courageous person. And I would say at that point, their worldview is one of courage that's em- uh, that's uh, that emanates courage that's um, yeah yeah you know what i mean so i would yeah. say that's more of how our worldviews are enacted through our emotions through the stories through our actions more than what we think about yeah steven how do you so you know we talked you talked about this both a bit in this transcendentals right truth beauty goodness i think we all get truth because and, and I know you're, you're going to want to define that more clearly, but on its base level, we get the idea of what truth is, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's the kind of, in some sense, the belief system, the the the, the things that we tell each other, um, and the like. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to beauty, given that that's really kind of a big part of your field and study, how yeah. does beauty enact within our worldview that shapes us? And, and why is it important to recognize how that happens? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think uh, first, just to uh, speak towards it in general, we do talk about beauty and specifically beauty, but we also talk about the first section as kind of speaking towards experience and the, and the aesthetic experience in general, which could be one of beauty or could not, but it's, it's just experience in general. And so, um, and so just to, I guess, let me talk about how we framed it before I answer, um, that specific question, if that's okay. Um, yeah. so basically, um, we, the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness or truth, goodness, and beauty, they're usually, it starts with truth. That propositional truth is usually how people approach it. And then they move on to action and then to reflection on an, an aesthetic thing. And we, we said, because of a renewal worship, because of what we're, or, uh, because of a renewal worldview, the way we're approaching it should actually be in reverse. And this is actually something borrowed by um, the Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. And uh, he did this for his like big, huge, uh, um, you know, like uh, the glory of the Lord, like his big um, systematic theology. He approached it starting with aesthetics. And uh, in the same thing, he was speaking towards uh, glory and beauty and speaking on those terms. And so essentially we want to talk about how we start the first chapter is how perceptions shape us. And so when Yoon is talking about, you know, hearing this story, the story of a courageous person, we might even say, like, even before that, just like our first experience of a courageous, like seeing a courageous person, seeing courage in action, um, um, us doing something and feeling a certain way, like those kind of things are, are, if we think about Pentecostalism, a lot of times foundational for even our thoughts. And we also are pretty clear of saying that those three of truth, beauty, and goodness, they're like, they really do wrote, they kind of like interpenetrate and talk to each other constantly. So it's really right. hard to pinpoint the Genesis. Um, but we thought it, it would be a nice approach to do it this way, to get us thinking of just how important the first beginning state of even our perceptions of our experiences in the first place are. So that that's essentially um, why we chose to go that way. And so as far as beauty goes, beauty can speak um, in, a, in a bunch of ways. And so I have a def- definition for it um, in the uh, uh, chapter two. And so you can probably tell um, I wrote the aesthetics part. Yoon wrote the epistemology part. 
and then we split the ethics part. You could probably just have told that like um, without just, just knowing a little bit about us. Um, but we were very, very heavy um, editing each other's stuff. So we were all, our, our voices are integrated all throughout. But um, so we define beauty as the quality in an object that upon its perception gives a person pleasure and radiates the way an object should be. And so mm. I thought that was um, what, what was interesting is like, when we see something as beauty, we have, there's a subjectivity in it, you know, like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But at the same time, we have this sense that, and this is very Kantian, we have this sense that that's, everyone should think that's beautiful. You know, like when we look at our, our, our beautiful wife, not only do we say, wow, you're beautiful. We don't say you're beautiful and I'm the only one who sees that. We're saying like, we're beautiful and truly we believe everyone should think that, you know? And, um, and so uh, there is a persuasion that's involved with beauty and and the arts like we are we we look at something and we have a reaction to it and then we seek to persuade each other into that hey did you like that movie yeah why because of this well no because of this and then we persuade each other in that and so there's this open open-endedness and that was one of the very interesting things that Kant actually does in his critique of judgment which is a little different than his other ones he's like this is the mm -hmm. this is the type of uh, of of understanding that we can actually um uh it, that's kind of open and free and we can kind of persuade with and so that's that and so if we look at our narrative as pentecostals and we think about the universal outpour of the holy spirit in acts 2 spirit poured on all flesh and and um and then you know before that jesus inaugurating the kingdom and then we await uh you know uh to christ's return uh the consummation of this kingdom and we're in this kind of in-between state we can look at beauty in this way so we can see beauty as as something as the way it should be we can start seeing it as a, a charism as a as an interworking when, when we experience the holy spirit in our world today when we experience god in our world today we're experiencing something of the way things are supposed to be a telos that's that's kind of like that we're aiming towards right um, and so so i think that's kind of the the way we can think of it as pentecostals and as we're perceiving the world um just in regular like our, in our christian worldview our perceptions shape the way we know things shape the way we understand stand things but then we start thinking about the world as one that is affected by the spirit the world as, as one that's enchanted by the spirit you know like that we can that we can go around and see the spirit's beauty everywhere so um i think that's yeah. A, essentially yeah yeah, I like that, especially when when we are thinking and 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 you know, Stephen, we're I'm writing a chapter along with a friend for a book that you're also doing, um, putting both you and I to shame in the amount of books that you're pumping out. But um, where we are talking about the spirit, and it's the spirit's work through what we're saying, neoclassical wordless music, right? Something about this idea of beauty, and and I think. In some ways, uh, and you're welcome for another plug of another book coming out sometime next year. Um, <laughs> yeah. This can be all about your books at some point. The Spirit and the Song with the yeah. one and only Aaron Ross and Mark nice. Bird contributing a, a beautiful chapter. And I can't wait to to see what they write. It's due but it's I, January 1st. We'll see what happens. <laughs> are you saying we'll see what happens as if do we turn it in on January 1st? Yeah, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. You know, I got a baby yeah. coming in just like three weeks. So, <laughs> wait, a second one? Hey, congrats. Wait, Yoon, you didn't know this? You don't 
actually love me enough to tell me <laughs> I like how you shamed him by not knowing something about his personal life. That was great. You, that, was, that was great. I don't even know what I was talking about anymore. Thanks a lot. All right. Uh, you and you've seen things on Facebook. Come on, man. Actually, probably because I don't I don't post either. stuff on Facebook. Yeah. So uh, anyways, there is something about this idea of of beauty lending towards the end goal that spirits work in beauty towards the end goal of things yeah. that I, I do think is uniquely Pentecostal uh, because we are so focused in some sense on on not the world as it is, but the world as it should be. Yeah. Uh, because the spirit is at work in doing that today, not maybe some of our Pentecostal forebears who were more in some sense concerned about the return of Christ and then fixing it all right. Kind of we've, I think in some ways, Pentecostal theology has kind of shifted, made this big shift towards the spirit pushing us towards this. And I know it's been there in the past, but I think we're more focused on it now with that said, is that what makes this uniquely Pentecostal or is that what uniquely makes this new metalogical? And I think there might be some people who are listening to this. They're like, well, I'm not Pentecostal or I'm not, you know, I don't think that way, but yeah, sure. This sounds great to me the way that you're saying it. Like, yeah. how is it that we're actually making this claim? This really is unique towards the landscape of the way that we think about worldview. Well, I so, would say, let me, let me uh, just do uh, jump in first uh you i'm sorry um for cutting you off uh apologize i'm used to it <laughs> sorry Before with aaron <laughs> so um sorry bro so i just wanted to what, make one quick caveat um while we do think this is uniquely pentecostal we have construed conceived of pentecostalism as extremely broad in this book um we specifically use the word renewal um on purpose this is kind of the what how the pew foundation has uh has defined Pentecostalism as a global affair where it's it's classical Pentecostals is neo-Pentecostals and charismatics. So it's churches that are, uh, you know, like Assemblies of God, but then also like like Bethel, or like that might be like, you know, considered charismatic or or from another denomination that is kind of showing this. So our subtitle is called A Holistic Approach for Spirit-Filled Christians, um, which I think is a little more indicative. I do think people from other traditions and a lot of our endorsers were from other traditions. They weren't Pentecostal. And uh, they, they can find a lot of value in that too. But I do think it helps us as Pentecostals give language to what, we were, what we've been saying for a while. Yeah. So, yeah. Go ahead, you. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, this isn't, when we use the term Pentecostal, we, we don't merely mean classical Pentecostal. Aaron, like, like you said at the very beginning, you and I belong to Mythio Mosaic slash Anglican Mission International, which is a convergent missional um, uh, charismatic um, uh, movement tradition. You know, so that's my background. Uh, Stephen, yeah, he's you know he's part of Foursquare, and you know, and Aaron and I are former AG. We have that classical Pentecostal background, but even for me. Really, my I became AG because that's all I knew right after I got I got saved. Before then, I even know what Pentecostalism was, right? So at least for me, from you know my authorial perspective, is that I'm I'm not writing as somebody who was very entrenched in my identity as a classical Pentecostal. My background is variegated, and so we wrote we we uh, in the I believe in the introduction. Um, I think I wrote this in the section that. 
we're kind of continuing what some of the reformed uh, uh, philosophers and theologians were talking about uh, worldview in less propositional terms and more affective terms and their uh, narratival terms. So like, I think I mentioned James Sire, like he's one of the big, vo biggest voices in worldview. He's, yeah. uh, you know, um, uh, Universe Next Door and uh, another one. But but when you look at his like a book for the, his like first edition to I think his like seventh edition, you can see this progression from a very propositional understanding of worldview to a more storied um, uh, perspective. So I, I actually mentioned that kind of this is this is where we're going at, and we're just continuing that trajectory. So there is a I would say a, a common almost a universal um, a perspective that people who are not classical Pentecostals or, or people who are just part of the global Pentecostal um, renewal tradition can identify with. And I think that kind of segues well with the idea of the transcendental. When, when um, Stephen and I first began thinking about a, a book, um, it, we, it wasn't, I don't think, Stephen, I don't think we were talking about worldviews per se. We were just talking about the transcendentals. Yeah. So as transcendentals, we're talking about something that's mind independent, independent of what we perceive. They are beyond us. You know, they're objective in their nature. So if worldview is an, an understanding, an imagination of what reality is like, then there is going to be some universal aspect to it. Now, of course, our access to that universal is not um, purely objective. That's not I don't. I don't think that's possible. I think that's enlightenment thinking. Yeah. It's not purely subjective, which I also think is the other side of the enlightenment. I think following people like Heidegger and Jamie Smith and whatnot, um, worldview is the entanglement. The the the, the in 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 Pentecostal terms, the the divine human interaction, the objective and the subjective interaction of how we come to know um, and understand this complex and beautiful wonderful uh creation that god has given us yeah so, yeah so let's let's kind of go down that route just a little bit then when we when you, you know using this term propositional these propositional truths these statements these beliefs that you know should frame the way that we see the world right kind of make it really simple that way yeah what does your proposal here what does it actually do? Like, what does it give us? What is it? How does it help us? Or how does it change things for the church that, you know, there seems to be a trajectory heading that way. And you both have kind of really helped cap, in some sense, that trajectory and really give it the words that it needed. But what is it really doing? Like, how is it fixing a problem or helping us engage with something that we otherwise would be stuck with if we're still just dealing with worldview as propositional. Real quick, Stephen, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, jump in here real quick. So the you first chapter, it. you deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to take it. All right. Um, the first chapters of each section. So part one, chapter one, part two, chapter five, uh, part three, chapter nine, we, we start off each section with kind of like a practical chapter of how um, a renewal worldview contributes to a contemporary issue. 
So um, chapter one is on aesthetic formation, how perception shape, uh, shapes us. Chapter five is civic engagement, how to be salt and light in the world. Chapter nine, cultural apologetics, how to speak truth to culture. And so we wanted to intentionally start off each section, each, each, each part to kind of grab the reader's attention and say, well, this is why, this is how what's to come are, are which is the last chapter of each section, uh, each part is go, uh, has some, you know, payload, has some um, um, relevance and practicality in the, in the uh, topic that yeah. we're talking about. And uh, so, so I, I think, um, let me just uh, add real quick. So we did structure this as a, uh, as a textbooks, we're thinking of our students in mind. And so um, that was definitely, at first it was going to be the last chapter, last chapter of the section. And we were like, let's start with it because I think we really need to like actually show people why they're invested in it. Um, and then, uh, you know, the second of each of each chapter is a history, a, a historical survey. So it's like it does it of aesthetics, it does it of ethics, and it does it of epistemology. And then the third chapter of each section is a, a comparative. And that's why I think it's also helpful for uh, non-Pentecostals is because uh, you, we see Protestant, Orthodox, Catholic viewpoints, Reformed, like a lot of different, different types of uh, uh, viewpoints there. And they're all treated fairly and with care, you know what I mean? Like with, uh, with generosity. And then finally, the fourth section is a renewal perspective. So how do, how do we get a specifically Pentecostal um, reading of this, Pentecostally broadly construed reading of uh, beauty, goodness, or truth? And so um, that's essentially the structure of it. So I think to answer your initial yeah. question, what might someone get from it? I think they'll they'll get um, a good a, a good understanding of how worldviews work across the Christian uh, spectrum, and then how uh, how Pentecostals can speak of it on on terms that uh, that is is true to them. Let's let's actually dive into that one. Uh, you talk about that last section, right? Civic engagement. Um, oh, sorry, the last one was apologetics, right? Yep. You know, is apologetics dead, right? That's the question that is asked, and it's asked often in a modernistic sense, right? Like that propositional truth. Does apologetics do anything to further the work of the church um, in a modernistic sense? And so that's such a, a loaded question, but really what I want to ask more about is how is your kind of perception of this renewal Christian worldview. I know it's not a modernistic propositional approach to apologetics. How are you reframing it, especially through the transcendentalists? And why do you think it's important? How do you think it's helpful, etc.? Yeah. Uh, so again, undergirding um, the, or the, the, the embodied aspect of worldview is the Pentecostal story. Like why is embodiment important? Because of the spirit that has been poured out upon all flesh. So there's, there's this kind of fundamental, implicit, numinological element that uh, that motivates our understanding of worldview. So if so, this divine uh, human encounter, this experiential, and and also then affective, emotional, because experience is especially an experience with God is going to have an emotive affective aspect of it and then the narrative part about um, the story of what it means like how to anticipate encounter and then the story that we tell the testimony that we tell about that encounter that kind of shapes our under this um, totally changed understanding of our place in the world right 
um, when we when we look at it from that type of experiential embodied uh, perspective and how that's fundamental in in the shaping of our understanding of reality, well then then apologetics shouldn't shouldn't should also I would say need to target the fundamental understanding of reality and and to do that again is not through let's say um, uh, philosophical arguments like the modal ontological argument or the Kalam cosmological argument. Now those I think can be helpful, right? They they do have their place. But what's more important then is to target who we fundamentally are as narrated, uh, narrative, affective, embodied people. Then we need to show, um, we need to one, figure out how people actually operate. And if we are, as psychologists and some philosophers are arguing, more emotional and quote unquote irrational people, I don't think where I disagree is that emotions are necessarily. Um, irrational and reason is somehow more rational or cognition is rational. Right. I disagree with that dichotomy. I think emotions can be very much rational. But anyway, um, then we need to uh, look at things like psychology, uh, sociology or whatnot, and see how people actually operate. And it's that, and people are drawn, I would argue, more toward things like beauty Um uh, and emotions, things that move their emotions more than syllogisms, right? Right. I mean, this this book is geared toward freshmen and sophomores. I mean, we had intention uh, originally intended to write this at a graduate level, um, but especially not, uh, after we changed it to uh, our target audience to freshmen and sophomores, we knew that we needed to target uh, uh, things that they are more drawn toward, which is more of the experiential, you know. And so cultural apolog apologetics should, I would say, more, be more cultural. And, and here there is a book uh, written by an excellent philosopher named Paul Gould, and um, he is one of our endorsers. Um, and he wrote a book called Cultural Apologetics, and he argues that we need to show how Christianity is beautiful, not just true. Because people mm -hmm. can think that Christianity true is true, but still say, well, I don't, I don't want it. I don't like it. Even right. if it's true, I've seen Christians act terribly I mean, you and i have seen that you know we have experienced it and it makes christianity ugly so so what if if we can then argue propositionally through a very tight syllogism or through watertight evidence that christianity is true for embodied people we need other things to to convince them i guess yeah persuade them yeah go ahead Stephen. i would give an example um and this is like it's going to be kind of a loaded sounding example for sure. But, um, you know, we, we, when we communicate, we communicate a lot more than just our words. And I think this is what people um, tend to not see. So in an ethics class I teach, when we talk about something like LGBTQ, so th they'll say, you know, um, homosexuality is biblically a sin. And that's a true statement. But then when we, the way someone talks to someone, they may communicate homosexuality is a sin, I hate you, and God hates you too. <laughs> Just because of the way they said it, because of everything else that they're bringing with them. And so while they might have been saying, you know, a statement that was true, a proposition that was true, they're not speaking truth because they're also saying all this other junk and, and pinning it on, on, on God because of affections. Uh, and so that's, you know what I mean? So like when you hear this statement, 
truth without love is brutality and love without truth is sentimentality. That's not, I, I don't think, I think that's a little misguided too. Truth without love is impossible for a Christian. Jesus Christ is the way, truth, and life. We know this. And God is love. And so when we're speaking truths that are propositional, they need to be true all the way or it's not truth anymore. There needs to be a way to say this and say that like, and, and still have the impression that God still very much loves them, especially when we're speaking about how this affects in the church and whatnot and how it is in the Bible. So that's, and I, you see the church doing this all the time. You see, you see this happening all the time where, you know, they, they think there's a, there's a battle against truth and being loving towards people. Like you have to pick one or the other. And right. that's just, you know, and that's, and that's one of the most damaging things. It's like, no, what you're told is not to speak tro- pro- a, a, a true statement, a, a something that's propositionally true. You're spoke, told to speak truth. Uh, Jesus says, they will know you by the way you love. They'll know you're my disciples by the way you love. And, um, and you know, this famous St. Francis of Assisi, we're going to go into the city and preach the gospel. And if we need to, we'll use words. So there's something about our, our testimony, about the way we are, about how we're bringing everything into a whole framework. We're, we're bringing a whole context to the, to the conversation and we're approaching a whole context. We're not just right. saying a line. And so we want to make sure that what we're saying is not just true, but truth. And I think that's, that's kind of getting towards it with a little bit of a, you know, a, a tough example, but I think probably something the church needs to hear. You know, we, we speak too it, hatefully. It definitely is, is thinking back to something, you know, that you said, it definitely is the case that we have lost the, the conversation around what is true so quickly by how ugly we make everything yeah right i mean and and that's it's true in so many different spaces in our political world right now in our our social civic engagements the way that we even use language to talk about and and pentecostals hey we're at fault here right because we use this language all the time about being at war and there's you know because we had this uh spiritual battle kind of reality that i think sometimes was more influenced by people like frank peretti in his books <laughs> than actual reading of scripture and understanding what we were talking about but we use that kind of language so often that it almost gives us uh the right to say things that we think are true with malice and ill intent and yeah. it comes off so ugly that no one wants to do anything with us. No. And the reality is, and, and I, I say this to my wife quite often, I think there's a special grace for the people who are on the back end of the church's malice and ill intent that we can't fathom. Yeah. Because we're the ones who are preaching a different gospel, right? That very thing that that they find Jesus despite they find Jesus despite Christians sometimes, <laughs> you know. Right. You know, and and there's something there's something about kind of this that I think is so, that's why I wanted to bring up that particular chapter. It's so important for a church that, as you both know from all of your research, from everything that's out there, a church that is in the U.S. continually on the decline, really being bolstered by immigrants uh, to our country who are actually helping keep church rates afloat. Even still, it's going down as the church is growing in other parts of the world, but not here we have done a really bad job at 
being able to speak truth with love and beauty and goodness and what this yeah. all means for us, we've we've just lost it because we'd we'd so rather be right in proposition than we are right in love. Um, yeah, and maybe there's my diatribe for the second. Anything else? Um, you know, there's so much here. I, I would encourage people, of course, to go and buy it, even if you're not a freshman or a sophomore uh, in college. I think it's a really helpful book, especially for those who maybe not have engaged with worldview um, often or thought about it. Maybe it's a new term, but anything else that you would say, hey, here's another part uh, in our last remaining minutes that we didn't get, we didn't touch on, but you think is really important. I know we didn't really get to goodness too much, um, but anything well, else that you can think of that's like, this is, this is important here too. Honestly, um, how we were just talking about it, um, it was really getting towards even what chapter five was, the civic engagement, how to be salt and light in the world. Um, it was saying the same stuff and it was, uh, you know, being guided by, by love, by kindness and, um, and, and this, exactly the same thing. So we do, we do want to have that, that thread go all the way through. So, um, so just one of them is about our, our perceptions, seeing beauty everywhere, then enacting beauty everywhere. And then knowing this everywhere, you know, so like, so it kind of goes that way when we think about it in that way, or, 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 and the same thing goes with truth, seeing truth everywhere and acting truth and then knowing truth, you know, seeing goodness, um, uh, um, enacting goodness and knowing goodness. So like, um, I think these things all tie together really, really well. And I think you just said it, um, uh, very beautifully. And that's, I think why I think, uh, you and I felt somewhat of a burden to write this and, um, and yeah, we hope the blessing for some people. We hope uh, people can really get stuff out of it. Yeah, yeah and and um, I want to just again kind of hit on what worldview is because I think right. I think um, we've been so conditioned to think worldview in a very theoretical way. Uh, the 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 example that you gave about how people uh, I think read scripture to understand these certain groups or whatnot as the enemy or, or whatnot. Yeah. And, and then we kind of see, and then we enact that out. You know, we, we're not taught that we read that. We read that story saying that this is us, this is God's people, and th this is them. They are the enemy. Right. And then we enact that out. And so all those stories have now shaped us to not just view the, the, uh, the, the reality and populations as us and them, we feel that they are us and we feel that they are against us, you know? Yeah. I mean? yeah. So mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's worldview. That's the power of worldview that's embodied and storied and emotional. That's what worldview fundamentally is not about the seven ultimate questions about reality, like where we're going. Whatnot. Although all those, like how we answer those questions are our narrative, you know? Um, and then another thing, just uh, this is something that, that Stephen and I um, talked about in the beginning and I think kind of throughout the writing process is because we wrote this ultimately to freshman, sophomore students, um, we had to take out a lot of complex um, ideas, which and so we try we we took things out and we tried to explain a lot of um, introductory ideas. So. I think scholars or at least even graduate level students or well-read um, you know, uh, ministers or whatnot, um, people, they might find ideas that they could quibble about. Um, but I think we intentionally uh, mentioned uh, somewhere that 
this is broad enough and um for for people to say okay this is a similarity and we can kind of run run with it you know that's that's what right. it means to write from a renewal perspective there is no the renewal perspective so we've not we right. haven't captured that that's just impossible and so we've offered uh, an introductory kind of um i don't even want to say fundamental or foundational um but an some, intro but, to the conversation yeah there you go and we hope that they can find something that identifies with their renewal perspective and that they will analyze it and see discover for themselves how they can uh, continue what we have built or even change and 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 perhaps we can be changed by their contribution in the future so yeah it's an open dialogue we're, we're you know, gonna we have... go yeah go ahead <laughs> sorry i was gonna say we're gonna go all the way back to the idea of constructive theology all mm -hmm. the way back to say it's open-ended ready to be malleably changed. Um, and I like that, right? I think that is that is what it means to be human. Um, hey, both of you, thank you so much. Maybe next time we'll all get together and fight about postmodernism, modernism, metamodernism, and why Stephen hates every <laughs> Please, time I bring it up. No more. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I appreciate you both. Um, we've already kind of shouted out some books that you guys got coming out. Anything else you want people to know? How can they connect with you, uh, your work, your writing, so on and so forth? I'll start with you, Stephen. Um, you can check out my website. Um, there's a contact form if you want to connect on, on anything. It has my, uh, I'm, almost, I'm also a visual artist and a musician, so I have some of my art, music, and stuff on there. And uh, my writings and, um, and some sermons that I've, I've preached. So that's stephenfelixjaeger.com, just my name.com. And um, and if you contact me there, I'm more than happy to uh, to chat with you guys about um, about whatever. I'm about to go look up right now. Is itsmyname.com available? Because if Ooh. it is, I'm buying it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> it's my name.com. Like I'm sure it's not available. Uh, Yoon, to you, man. Um, I'm not really on social media, but I, I can be found on Facebook. I guess uh, there's a lot of Yoon Shin, so. Um, find this face. Find the most handsome one. The most <laughs> handsome one. Um, my email is shin at gmail.com. Um, I'm not the most original person. So shoot me an email if with any questions. Um, these days, I'm, I'm just uh, taking care of the kids. So my wife has gone back to work and I am just doing my own thing these days. So we'll see. Hey, stay-at-home dads are heroes. It's the being a house husband. The one plug, watch the way of the house husband. It's the greatest show ever on Netflix, <laughs> um, or the or, or the um, the I think Instagram uh, Cholo house housewife. It's so funny. Anyway, I I, I was just thinking about this uh, in the shower today because the greatest idea is coming the shower, right? Um, I don't know how I feel about ending the podcast on a Yoon shower <laughs> thought, but let's do it. Why not? All right, for all the Thank visual you. thinkers out there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's because now I'm, you know, I'm 41, soon to be 42. I, maybe, maybe my perspective has been skewed, but I have, I think I've, the only time where I've been in my life where I've been more like busier than now as a house husband was when I was on deployment, not even when mm. I was just active duty, but when I was on deployment. So mm. like, I don't know how my wife did it for so many years. Um, in fact, our good friend Rick Wadholm asked me if I would, uh, if I wanted to contribute a blog post for Missio Mosaic, 
and AMI. And I told him if I did, I would write something on um, on uh, on wives and their role as Ezer, as as helper, not as how complementarians would understand that word as someone who's subordinate, who's there to be submissive in a help in a you know in that helpful way, but as one who is kind of like a battle buddy who comes along just as God is our mm -hmm. helper. And I think being a house husband and doing things that she has done in very terrible ways um, and always being worn out is giving me really great insight on um, the sacrifice that many women make. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's been a, it's been eye-opening. I truly don't know how my wife works and takes care of our kid soon to be two. surprise Yoon. You should have known this, <laughs> uh, right. Just Vulcan, you know, whatever mind meld somehow, but we are definitely getting her help in this next season with two without a doubt. Um, Hey, both of you, thank you again. Appreciate you both. And, uh, we'll, we'll chat again soon. Thanks brother. It's been fun. Yeah. Uh, I love your podcast. You're the man, but everybody's listening already knows already knows that i i don't know but i appreciate <laughs> your kind words <laughs> go rate and review i don't ever ask people to do that nonsense but now that yeah, you go, hey, the door, go thank rate you. and review his you know, podcast tell him how good it was tell him uh you know that he's just such a cool dude because he deserves it because you're the man aaron and not just well, because you're a host but because of who you are my friend yes wow look at this Look at that. I'm going to be going to bed tonight just radiating and glowing. My wife's going to be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so happy? There you go. There you go. Told him he's cool. All right, my friends. We'll chat soon. Goodbye. Right. 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 Right.